We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, our host Lily Zhang is interviewing Kavita Gonzalez, who is not a registered architect, but works in practice as the sustainable design lead at Populous and is also a PhD candidate at the Queensland University of Technology. Kavita shares the process she's been going through in her PhD that focuses on social sustainability and the ways place can evoke positive experiences. Let's jump in. Thanks so much, Kavita, for coming in for our PhD show and tell. Just to give you some background information. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great. Um, but first, we'd like to acknowledge the Turbul and Yagara people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and pay our respects to elders, past and present and emerging. We recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait people. May their strength and wisdom be with us today. And so just to give some background information, Kavita is the sustainability lead at Populous and she has worked in transdisciplinary projects of workplace design, design research, graphic design, architecture, urban design and design strategy. She has recently completed her PhD focusing on radical placemaking. So just to begin, mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear about the lead up to your PhD. So people tend to misunderstand that your career begins after your degree, but that's not really the case. What did you do before your PhD? Well, hello, Lily. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, podcast. Well, you did give a quick introduction to my background, but effectively, um, I'm an architect by training and I completed my architecture somewhere in 2005. And I went on to work with a number of architecture firms in India at the time for two years. And I moved on to do a master's of architecture and energy and environmental studies because at that time I was quite interested in sustainability. I still am. I clearly still am. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I was in at Glasgow School of Art for two years. And from there I went and I did another course in sustainability called Creative Sustainability, which was basically a minor studies out of Alto University. And throughout that time, I think I worked with a lot of At Alta University, actually, what began was my work with communities and uh, creative placemaking, where one of my first projects and collaborations with Satu Ketunen and Paulina Seppala was looking at how art, graffiti, street art could really uh, change place. And this was particularly new for Helsinki, but because at that time uh, they were just completing 10 years of uh, anti-graffiti law. So when we developed this project, there was a lot of construction happening in the city center. Uh, This law was ending and we had Helsinki Design Week coming up. And somehow during that time, we managed to get free paints, free printing, uh, which was kind of unheard of, but a lot of, it was a lot of asking. 
And we got art put up on these construction sites because they were all covered by plywood. And yeah, we even got permission from parliament at that time to put up artwork around the parliament because they had a bit bit of construction around there. So that is one of the first things I ended up doing. Um, And I think that's one of the first times I discovered uh, the power of just asking a question, (laughs) seeing what people say. Uh, And usually the worst thing could be that they say no, (laughs) which is not the most thing. That's not the most terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess along with my career as being an architect and then sustainability consultant, I always worked in communities at the same time um, and developing projects that linked social media, technology with what was needed on the ground. So that's kind of been my experience. Um, I moved, I've always been very interested in research, so I moved to um, research-based design when I was working with Gensler out in Bangalore. Uh, which was a really amazing uh, experience and sort of laid, I would say, a lot of a big foundation for me, where we use research, uh, research methods, processes to actually inform what kind of design, design interventions we do. So and that began. Um, so I spent around four years with Gensler, and yeah, I since I'm I was very research oriented. I that's when I decided that oh I should do a PhD. It's time. I think I know what I want to do do it in um, because this game had come out, Pokemon Go, at that time, and I was very excited about it and what it could do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So that's uh, so I guess that's my very long answer to what what did I do before my PhD. Yeah. yeah. So I guess like what was the pinnacle where you wanted to integrate the sustainability into your PhD as well? What I've always been interested in and what has always been very hard to quantify is uh, aspects around social sustainability. You know, we can measure a lot of things around the built environment. Um, we can measure a lot of things around the economy. But how do you measure, uh, say, happiness, attachment? Uh, how do you measure joy of place? So that was something that I think I I was quite interested in. I was interested in how we use tools like technology, immersive technologies, augmented reality, uh, you know, tools like that to actually create experiences in place that would uh, evoke emotions and feelings, happy, sad, your whole range of it, anger, grief, also a lot of happy, uh, joy. So how do how do you evoke that in place? And that became sort of the uh, focus in my PhD. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you also did some other projects as well, such as the Chatty Bench project. Do you want to talk about that? What was that about? <laughs> that was actually the first project uh, in my PhD where I actually began by testing out this tool called Twine, which is a very underground interactive fiction tool. Um, you basically write story. People use it to write stories. Um, you know, choose your adventure books uh, where you actually select what happens next. The reader selects what happens next and eventually they begin to select what the ending could be also. So that's what interactive fiction uh, allows people to do. And it's a very, I would think it is still a pretty underground tool right now. Not a lot of people know about it. Um, so I started testing that tool and I started developing a prototype for it. And I created a prototype out here in Brisbane, Brisbane City Gardens, where people could experience my own personal story and they could walk around through Brisbane City Gardens and they would hear 
uh, aspects of my life. And um, everything in, the, in that story was true. It was not fictional. And I embedded things like with images, audio, video, depending on what the narrative was. The catch was you had to be in a particular location to actually experience the story. So that's the genesis of Chatty Bench Project. Mm -hmm. So I had this idea, and now I wanted to see if I could work with the community to do that. So I collaborated with uh, Communify, which is an organization in Kelvin Grove, Kelvin Grove suburb out here in Brisbane. And they had a problem that they were facing because Kelvin Grove is a really diverse community and they have people from all over the world. There's a university out there. So the population is super transient. You also have affordable housing out there. So people are keep moving in and out of Kelvin Grove for various different reasons. So while they do that, it becomes really hard for people to make networks and create connections with other people because they're there like for a very short time and they're quickly moving. So that was a, what the problem that was identified out there was that uh, there's an issue of social isolation. Now, this is before the pandemic. Yeah. This is all before the pandemic. And they identified that, hey, we have this problem, social isolation. And the lady uh, who's in charge, uh, who takes care of Communify, that's Kate Wildman, she said that, I put the sign on a bench outside Communify that's happy to chat. It's, the sign basically says happy to chat. And the idea was that people would sit on that bench and while they tapped into the internet of Communify, they, would, um, they were sort of encouraged to also talk to each other. So that's where Chatty Bench came from. And uh, so the project began with this idea that people would actually go, would actually create stories around these benches, very similar to my prototype of Brisbane City Garden, which you could experience on your mobile phone. And you would go to different chairs or benches in Kevin Grove, and you would be able to listen to different stories of the residents of uh, Kevin Grove. So sort of like Pokemon Go, but instead of catching Pokemons, you're catching people's stories. But then we had the pandemic, and that changed everything <laughs> about yeah. Yeah. how we would <laughs> conduct the project. So it was a very quick shuffle of turning the complete the entire project digital and the, we couldn't really implement uh, using the benches in, in the project because we couldn't go to the locations during that time, you know, depending on lockdowns and uh, restrictions and everything. So not to put anyone in harm's way, we chose to run the project completely on online. We were not given much of an option. We had to do that. And we had 16 participants join the project. So we developed the project online. We got 16 participants and they created place-based stories of Kelvin Grove based on their experiences of living there. Uh, I want to say 60% were women in the group and around 80% were people of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, very similar to me. Yeah. And they had to learn how to use Twine, just as I did. They had to learn how to code. And uh, yeah, you can now experience this project in Cameron Grove. These stories are still all completely online and available. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool that they did that. And at the end of the project, actually to a somewhere midpoint of the project, we were going to have an exhibition. And so we held it in the virtual environment of Mozilla Hubs, which is basically a VR environment. Mm -hmm. 
And that was a f- sort of the first time everyone met virtually. But when they met over there, what was funny was that they all wanted to meet in person. And then so once the project ended, we actually had a gathering, depending on restrictions, but things had eased down. And we had a gathering together at uh, Kundu Park in Kelvin Grove, where everyone met for the first time after engaging with each other for nearly 10 weeks online. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that is insane. Yeah. Because what was one of the story? that resonated with you the most out of the 16 storytellers in there? I think all of them resonated for different reasons, not because they had happened particularly to me, but I could identify with some of it. So there were stories around, for example, topics of domestic violence or being uh, an asylum seeker out here and getting their first home, Mm -hmm. you know, in uh, Brisbane after years of, I don't know, living on the street or things like that. Then we also had people who were just undergoing a regular life of being a student at QUT, you know, um, experiencing regular stresses of, you know, trying to put in an assignment, for example. And they created a story around that. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one, another person created a story around how they experience anxiety. And to experience anxiety in this story, you actually had to be part of the Saturday markets in Kelvin Grove to actually know what, so you follow the story through the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're all they're all very different stories. They're yeah. not your happy, they're not, they're very real, I would say. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree because like everyone would relate in some way to those storytellers yeah. because I went through my masters throughout the entire COVID period. Oh, wow. so that was very isolating. So it's definitely like I could be one of those storytellers and kind of show that kind of story. Um, Yeah. Interesting enough, like a few people who were there were wrote about how they move, who they had just moved to the country and then they were going through this experience of isolation Mm. thanks to COVID. Mm. And also the isolation they experienced because they have moved to a new place. So the combination of both these two things happening to them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But I really like that idea because it not only applies to within that Kelvin Grove area, but it can also apply to other neighborhoods. Yes. Even in the city because there's people who experience the exact same things within Kelvin Grove that would happen in other places and there's in West End I don't know if you've explored around there before but they have those libraries yeah yeah like bookshelf libraries and people would kind of share and then they can put some of their books in there and other neighbors can oh yeah yeah read them so there is like that community engagement that kind of makes you feel like you're within the neighborhood. You're Absolutely. part of the neighborhood. Yeah. It's a really nice feeling. And I feel like the Chatty Bench project is another way of kind of creating that social connection. Absolutely. I completely agree with what you're saying. And also it wasn't just eventually what I what I felt happened was that it just wasn't about creating connection. It was actually leaving personal history and physical space because all of us, most of us who were part of the project, I would say 70 to 80% of us who are part of this project and the other projects that were in my PhD 
we're all students, international students, all from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, all of us with no right to physical space. We can't vote and have a say on how we want any of the streets to be or any of the buildings to be or how we want public spaces to be. So that kind of, it became sort of like an activist tool in some ways, I think eventually for me, where I began to see this as a way to actually leave personal histories, histories that can be accessed. And it made me realize that, and here I really have to like, you know, pay respect to First Nation storytelling around how place affects all of us, no matter how long or how long we've been here or how short a time we've been here, we all have a right to it. Mm -hmm. And so how do we access that right? Yeah. And yeah, that became like the central focus. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about place, what does radical placemaking mean to you for those who are listening who might not understand like what it means? So um, radical placemaking began for me as an exercise where communities that experience marginalization use digital tools to engage in creative placemaking. But I think for me, the bigger goal became about history making and who gets to write history. And I want to have a say in, um, I want to be remembered and I want to have a say. So that kind of became the focus moving forward. So yeah, the personal is very tied in with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the radical part is, there are a number of ways to look at it at, at what radical is, but over here it was that there is uh, one way to look at it is that there was no physical intervention to place. It's just that we leave our memories and our stories in place and it's geolocated. And you'll be using technology where it allows us to geolocate these stories and memories and images. And we will always remember that it's there for someone else to see and experience if they want to. Mm. They don't have to, but we know it's there. We've left it there as a trace, so as a digital trace. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, because there's so many physical spaces where we populate them, but the people who weren't there during when it was populated, they don't remember what were the traces are like. So yeah. it's kind of like how can we show that? That's really interesting. So how what was your PhD experience like? It was very exciting. I absolutely loved it because I loved the work that I was doing. I loved uh the people that I got to work with in it. I love that I was, people were learning, I was teaching, and maybe I was learning a lot from everybody, not necessarily only teaching. Um, I got to play with a lot of tools and see what worked, what didn't. So really got to experiment. Mm -hmm. That's all the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now the bad stuff was that it happened during a pandemic. So the PhD is generally quite a, isolating experience because you're the only one doing it so at the so you're already isolated in some ways because of the framework of the PhD and you don't necessarily always get to work with other people just because of the framework of the PhD it almost discourages you from working with other people or collaborating with other people which is not really a reflection of how work is done in the real world but anyway, so that's so that's one layer of isolation. And then you have the pandemic that comes and just keeps you in your house and you're unable to go out and meet other people. So that was a second layer of 
sort of isolation. And so what I ended up doing, I guess, was I ended up doing like the job of five people. I was just always working all the time, trying to, (laughs) trying to get this all, get the projects through. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like want to ask about first with what kind of tools did you get to work with? Was it immersive tools? Yeah. Um, So I worked with very low, low tech immersive technologies. So typically when I'm referring to maybe high tech, we're talking about like something like Unreal Engine, which allows you to create augmented reality, which is similar to like your Pokemon Go game on your mobile phone. Now, mine was super, super low tech where it was as simple as trying to write narratives that were just with geolocation code. Now that that was basic and I know that might sound really complicated to <laughs> listeners, but that was base level, basically. So um, so I worked with something called Twine that I mentioned earlier. Then another one was CGeoMap, which is another tool and it's easier to use because of the interface, uh, the graphical interface that it has. Uh, we didn't do any coding in that one, which is basically the second project. And the third project, I collaborated with an artist out in Canada where we used a tool called Hydra which allowed us to, to the in the third project, people submitted like videos about their experiences of Calvin Grove. And the artist, uh, and people also had the option to submit code for Hydra. But what Hydra basically allows us to do is, um, for example, it's live coding in the sense that as you code, things are happening up on the screen. But it's basically, you know, the kind of graphics that you see at a festival, a music festival, all the crazy graphics. You get you get to do that with Hydra. Oh, and so, cool. uh, so the artist and I collaborated on that. And we basically, um, so yeah, those are some of the tools. I also did some work with Web AR, which is easy, but not at the time, not very stable to use. But yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that helped you with your PhD findings? Well, the way my PhD was structured was that we have a tool, we test what it does, and does it allow us to actually create narratives and story and digital storytelling within place and all of them. So I would test them normally, and usually I'd be like, oh, yeah, this works very well, and then see what it means for other people to use it and, and how do I make it also easier for them to use it. And then we would create an artwork with the digital tool And then we would also assess how not just the one who created, but also those who experienced it, what do they think of it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was effectively the high level process with each of these tools. Yeah. But the primary goal was not the tools. It was actually to extract stories and make sensible narratives or connected narratives of place. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. (laughs) I guess like it's interesting because... I did my studies at RMIT and oh, yeah. did all of these immersive technologies as well. Oh, that's... And I did my whole entire semester project in Unreal Engine. Oh, okay. Tell me more. What was it about? Oh, now you're interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. started it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, so my tutor, Patrick, he opens up his own practice called Superscale and right. he's doing a PhD about changing the pedagogy of architectural, you know, practice and also teaching students right. um, to be in a more innovative way. And so we were looking into sustainability, but not the kind of 
green design or you know turbine power right and okay. all that stuff it was more speculative right and yeah the whole structure of it was throughout the semester was you do three different iterations and you use that typology building typology and morph them together but also analyzing all the behavioral type mm-hmm. behaviors from that typology and then you go into unreal engine and you curate the structure yourself and you come to an idea afterwards so it's okay. kind of like a reverse engineering sort of process rather than a top-down you start off with a concept design and this is your outcome later on so you started with the outcome first and you work backwards mm, oh, yeah awesome. yeah. yeah and by the end of the semester you basically present in a gaming like in a gaming world okay so you walk through your architecture in the game while the other people who are watching it would just kind of watch you play the game but it's actually your university project right. which was really fun and that was yeah one of the craziest well that explains your work in. with the metaverse yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> oh can't put that in Dan <laughs> but yeah it's it's really exciting oh. and so I guess that really overlaps like with what you're doing yeah. as well just kind of touching on you know how does the immersive technology kind of affect the community and yeah. bring the community together because at the moment the internet is doing the complete opposite way it's making us like feel isolated and you're not really looking up a lot and being aware of your surroundings as much yeah and yeah yeah that's yeah that's really cool yeah i always remember this one thing a participant in my study said we do not lead digital lives we cannot we're not leading 100% digital lives we have to be out in the physical environment uh engaging with other people and obviously he said that in response to his experience with the pandemic that we cannot 100% live uh, i know other people might beg to differ but that was that was quite interesting to hear that from yeah. yeah we have definitely adapted really well to the pandemic at the same time although we all we're all human beings we all want yeah. human touch and human interactions <laughs> in the end yeah um, but i also think that if some of us have adapted well to the you know to the pandemic is because we had the privilege to do so mm. there were others who could not who did not have the opportunity to be able to work from home they have Absolutely. to like go in they were essential workers so yeah so we just have to recognize uh, there are certain differences <laughs> between yeah. all of us and the experience of the pandemic yeah, yeah. So what what were the other difficulties did you encounter during your PhD besides the pandemic? Oh, that was a big one. I think I really missed collaborating with people. I tried to manufacture that for me, uh sometimes not with rare, not with great success. But yeah, I think I missed collaborating with people, bouncing ideas, you know, coming up with something together and yeah, that was the thing I think I missed. a lot and i think i missed that a lot uh from my gensler times because that's what that was you know my previous industry work was my point of reference before uh the phd so yeah i i really missed collaborating it was literally in the phd it's me sounding off with my supervisors but then it's just me and a screen putting yeah, ideas back and bouncing yeah so that's the yeah that's the bit i missed but that was within 
the framework of the, you know, doing the PhD, I was also doing other things like uh, being a research assistant on different jobs. I was teaching. So, I mean, I got interaction and, you know, I guess some amount of collaboration through that. But I guess I almost feel like within the spectrum of the PhD, I I miss that collaboration and I almost feel like that's a loss within the PhD. If you're really training people to do research work, you really need to be training them to work with others, know how to work with communities, how to embed yourself with them, especially if you're collecting primary data and, you know, having a research team uh, beyond your supervisors. I think a lot of researchers could benefit from that. Uh, You know, people who want to be researchers. Yeah. Yeah. If you could change the PhD structure, like how would you make it better so then you're able to collaborate better with your colleagues? I think three people should do one PhD. It cannot be one person Mm. doing it. The project should be framed in such a way that you have three different people perhaps who have complementary skills who are doing a PhD together because then you get to publish things together, you get to create an idea together, you have a team. It's... Mm. um, yeah. yeah, I completely agree yeah. because throughout my studies during my master's, there were all group projects. Yeah. And then all of a sudden for your thesis, it's you're on your own. Yeah. Unless you talk to your supervisor and say that I want to team up with someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very rare case um, because that would just complicate how you would mark the student because absolutely yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think like all the skills that you pick up though because you're doing it on your own is quite valuable mm. but I almost feel like you improve by 10x if there are a couple of y'all picking up those skills together because you have to improve because you need to keep up with the others not that I needed more work on my plate but just you know I get to bounce off yeah exactly and that's which is what we love about design and architecture and you know things yeah. about the design field mostly creative field yeah and then when things are hard at least you you're crying together with your group mates <laughs> instead of just maybe yourself. maybe i don't cry okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah how is this work different to the other work that you have done before like for your phd is that a good question or a bad question? What do you mean? Which work? What work? <laughs> well, guess, What's um, the differentiator? Yeah. I guess with the PhD mm-hmm. work, I guess like the previous work that you have built up towards yeah. your PhD, mm-hmm. like how has that kind of helped you to kind of reach to what you were looking for? Yeah, I think when I came to my PhD, I'd, I had already come with the I guess, a certain subset of skills that uh, worked very well within the PhD, like being, I had already done commercial research. So being able to develop a research process, being already be having awareness of like the research uh, tools, methods, processes. Obviously, there were some things that I learned for the first time, like, well, ontology, epistemology. Yeah, those were really yeah, very exciting. But <laughs> but there were a lot of um, things that I've I already came to the PhD with, which uh, I had received some amount of training in my industry, industry work. So I think that uh, primed me up for being able to develop projects and being able to 
work with communities being, uh, you know, all by all by myself, because in my industry, we have a team, we have three or four people, you know, putting together projects, but here it was, and that explains why I was possibly doing the work of like five people, because I, I had a sense of how I wanted things to look and what I needed them to be uh, based on my industry experience. So I was already coming into that, but I think what the PhD did was like it fine-tuned some of these skills. Um, it fine-tuned maybe how I, for example, want to conduct analysis. Like I will quickly say no to certain analysis processes because I'm like, that's not a very good use of time. So being able to like, I think that's what the, being able to have like a critical lens on some of these things, I think. Uh, oh, and lots of reading. That's the best part of the PhD, actually. Oh, yes. Lots and lots of reading. Do you like reading? I don't read for fun, which I think the PhD has killed for me. I only read for work. I think of most things I do as work anyways. So um, I feel like everything I do is always leading to something. I might not necessarily see it in that moment. So yeah, I enjoy it. I love it because it's always like I'm always getting new ideas thanks to reading. I think, but before that, I used to... You know, like, for example, we'd always use Pinterest for our design ideas. And I almost feel like now to me that the image is very limiting because you see the image and you stick to the image. Whereas if you read, your brain begins to imagine things that you um, have to stitch together, you know, slowly in drawing and things like that. So I think it's uh, it's another way to imagine and understand the world, so which is why, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it. Like I really emphasize the reading part yeah. as well because right after you finish your university studies, you don't read anymore. No, no one asks <laughs> you to read. No one like gives you homework to read. And Absolutely. So, yeah. How do you feel like that needs to be sort of integrated into the work practice? Absolutely. Um, reading and reflection. I think those are the two things we completely miss out on. We're just like action, action, action. We don't really spend time uh, reflecting on or debriefing on or doing enough research before we start a project. So those are the more two key components that are sitting at either end of delivering a project. Um, so we don't I feel in industry, sometimes we don't spend enough time doing that, which will actually help us improve our processes because we're quickly jumping onto the next project because we think that, oh, that's paying us, you know, money, dollars. But when we improve a process, we become more efficient. So we get more bang for a buck, more bang for our minute that we're putting into. So why wouldn't you want to be more efficient? So, yeah, yeah. Because, you're, because like PhD always trying to find innovative ways to kind of forward the design and kind of make the design to go to the next step absolutely and, you know sometimes the workplaces tend to miss out on that or there's no continuation where you can implement what you have learned throughout all those blood sweat and tears of four years of studying and yeah it, it's just I feel like it's needs to be you know pushed forward yeah absolutely I think that's what the PhD does a bit. It kills your arrogance a bit. You have to say you don't know everything and it's not possible to know everything. And that's why you need a team because they can fill gaps that 
that are probably not your expertise. Whereas in industry, I think there's a bit of arrogance. Once you build up project experience, you you think you know everything. And then it becomes very hard to be open to new ideas and uh, be able to be receptive to new ideas. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Where do you see yourself after completing the PhD compared to now you're finished? Is this what you've expected? <laughs> no, I did not expect it. <laughs> I thought I would be joining academia and writing tons of research. I would be a postdoc and on some research project. And that was what I thought I'd be doing, moving towards like a lecturer position or something like that. But um, I don't know, life works in mysterious ways. And now I'm a popular sustainability design lead. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I guess like, was there a moment that proved all that you've done was worth it? Ah, oh, so many times. So many times. Yeah, I. there are so many moments like that. I, I take the small wins. Mm. <laughs> I take them because the work is hard. So mm. the small wins and celebrate the small wins. Um, I can't think of a particular moment, but yeah, there are a lot of moments where I'm just like, Okay, now I know why I'm here. Now I know why this is happening. Now I know why I'm doing this. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think with me, I think it's always been that I've repurposed. I re keep repurposing my purpose, you know. And for me, it's quite important that I, and I'm very lucky that I've uh, been able to do that, but I really need to love what I'm doing. And sometimes that kills me, so there's a problem there. But <laughs> But I really need to love what I'm doing. So for me, purpose is very, very important. And um, I think from the time I did Multicolored Dreams in Helsinki, I think that was when I discovered that, wow, I have some agency. I can get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Uh, To now, I think I have, there must be like at least 10 rounds of me having, redoing what my purpose is in my head and what what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And right now it seems to me that... Uh, my little, my big, small purpose is making sure that the work that Populous does leaves a positive impact. And I don't know what that looks like, but we're figuring it out. We're figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you mentioned about multicolored dreams that you did yeah. in Helsinki. Yeah, what that's the that? street art project. Oh, yeah, that yeah. one. Right. Okay. That's called Multicolored Dreams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and I guess like how how has this experience influenced the way you work now? The way I work now, and I don't know if I'm very successful with it, but um, I try to be open to conversation. And I think that's what I always uh, try to also tell people, like, just come and talk to me. Five minutes, 10 minutes, let's figure this out. And I really encourage people who are, I try, I don't know if I'm very good at it again. I really try to encourage conversation. And if someone identifies a problem, I'm like, we should talk. I want to talk about it. And I want to see what we can do to actually make that better. And to be able to identify a problem means that someone has spent time thinking about it and reflecting on it. So to me, that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, um, so I'm interested in questions around uh, how do we design a pathway to make that easy for people to um, take ownership of the problems that they identify? Because 
I've been able to experience that with, say, multicolored dreams. For example, calling up Parliament and telling them, hey, we want to paint your walls. Will you allow us to do it? And they're like, yeah, sure, just email us. And I was like, what? That's it? That's it. <laughs> That's it. I mean, at that time, that was it. I don't think you can do that now. <laughs> it was pretty eye-opening for me. And then I just kept trying that formula every time. Like, just keep asking. Just keep asking. And just see what people say. And then sometimes for me, it's like, it's also how I ask the question. It might not always come across as a question. I need to like think about who's in front of me, who I'm talking to, what motivates them, what do they want to see in the world and try and see, okay, then maybe it's not a question. It's a story that I need to frame for them or it's a sentence I need to frame for them. So I guess a lot of the work I think I try to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> awesome. So I guess these are all the questions that I have for you. If there's someone who is thinking of doing a PhD, what would your advice be to them? See the PhD as a way to experiment and try things and do everything you want. Test your skills, test what it is you're capable of doing. Because during my PhD, I basically did that. I just sat and tried everything I did. Art festivals, I submitted things to Ours Electronica, things that I just didn't imagine a couple of years ago I would even think was possible for someone like me and I don't know why but that that was my thinking so yeah test and try and experiment but also know that academia is not the only way to go there are other avenues and be open to that so yeah yeah I guess some people feel that there's such a narrow pathway for those people who yeah yeah and you have done PhD it's just like people who want to become architects and you basically get registered and that's you're good to go for the rest of your life <laughs> yeah. but that's not the case no I I went from architecture to I don't know community organizer to artist to creative producer to I don't know researcher to now back to sustainable design and yeah, so there are so many different pathways. There's no, there is really no reason to pigeonhole yourself. You can do a number of things. I think you should want to do it. You should want to do it. That's probably the most important bit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming, Kavita, and sharing your colorful story. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our host, Lily Zhang, for interviewing Kavita Gonzalez, PhD candidate and sustainable design lead at Populous. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about social sustainability, one of the forgotten but extremely important areas of making sustainable and healthy communities. We can't wait to see what projects you work on in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Lily Zhang and Daniel Moore.
This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.